Section 29 of the Watergate Report, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 3, Section 29. Chapter 11. Individual Views of Senators of the Select Committee, Part 2. Mr. Howard H. Baker, Jr., U.S. Senator from the State of Tennessee. I believe that the activities and inquiry of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities have been, by and large, useful and appropriate. The bipartisan tone for the committee was established by the unanimous adoption of Senate Resolution 60 by the vote of 77 to 0 on February 7, 1973 i think with some exceptions that bipartisan attitude was preserved throughout the long and tedious proceedings from time to time there occurred conflicts and disagreements in the committee and between the respective staffs but they usually were resolved the final act of the select committee is to file its report and i am pleased it is not a perfect report some may say that it is without grace or style and that is probably true but it is the culmination of an extraordinary effort, and I am particularly gratified that the majority and minority staffs cooperated carefully in comparing their respective views and adjusting the text, so that in most instances a satisfactory joint staff position was submitted to the committee for adoption. The report is not adjudicatory, and indeed it often goes to some lengths to avoid finding fact in the traditional sense this requirement was directed to the committee staff by the chairman in deference i believe to the sensitivity of litigation in process or upcoming and of course to the inquiry into impeachment by the house of representatives i commend the chairman for that point of view in an historical perspective i believe that the committee's principal service may have been in the public ventilation of the facts and circumstances collectively assembled under the title of watergate the committee's gathering and disseminating the often shocking frequently embarrassing and sometimes incriminating evidence and testimony before it certainly should exert a deterrent effect and that effect may be far more important than the committee's recommendations i rather suspect that it may be a long while before a future president permits the occurrence of such unfortunate circumstances if that is the case then the committee's laborious effort the considerable expense and the national frustration will have been worth the investment i hope so recommendations one establishment of an office of public prosecutor within the department of justice appointed by the president for a fixed term and subject to senate confirmation the committee report recommends the creation of a judicially appointed permanent public attorney to investigate and prosecute cases in which there are conflicts of interest within the executive branch this recommendation and my own evidence recognition that the federal government is poorly equipped for investigating and prosecuting crimes allegedly committed by high-ranking executive branch officials prior to the appointment of the watergate special prosecutor there did not exist within the department of justice a division solely and specifically entrusted with the authority to investigate allegations of official misconduct cloaked with the requisite independence and statutory authority necessary for unimpeded access to government officials and documents 
and i believe the investigation would have proceeded more rapidly and effectively had such an arrangement existed consequently i agree in principle with the committee reports recommending the establishment of a permanent public prosecutor possessing a statutory mandate to investigate and prosecute allegations of governmental misconduct i have great doubts however regarding the constitutionality of the committee's proposal that the public attorney be appointed by the representatives of the judiciary the appointment of a permanent public prosecutor within the department of justice for a fixed six-year term as nominated by the president and subject to senate confirmation possesses none of the potential constitutional infirmities presented by a judicially appointed public prosecutor as were discussed in the senate debate this past fall on the hart by special prosecutor bill senator percy and i together with senators brock cook and young introduced s twenty seven thirty four on november twentieth nineteen seventy three that provided for the presidential appointment of a special watergate prosecutor subject to confirmation by the senate senator irvin on june seventeenth nineteen seventy four introduced s thirty six fifty two providing for presidential appointment of a permanent public prosecutor with senate confirmation and a fixed term of six years i believe both of these proposals avoid the constitutional pitfalls of the committee's recommendation and are attractive alternatives two establishment within the congress of a joint intelligence oversight committee so as to provide for increased congressional monitoring of governmental intelligence gathering activities both in the committee report and in other committee documents there is found a substantial body of evidence regarding the activities of the central intelligence agency the federal bureau of investigation the national security agency and other governmental intelligence gathering and or investigative organizations which provides insight into the activities as well as the abuses of these organizations relative to the matters under the select committee's perusal testimony was presented to the committee to the effect that there was an attempt by high-ranking white house officials to somehow involve the cia in the watergate cover-up that the fbi investigation of the watergate matter was impeded at the very highest levels of the bureau itself and that under the supervision of the white house intelligence gathering operations including unlawful activity were conducted outside the purview of the congressionally authorized intelligence and investigative agencies moreover as indicated in separate committee documents the cia provided extensive logistical support to the participants in both the fielding and democratic national committee break-ins and expressed a keen interest in the subsequent investigations the intelligence related material before the committee is not conclusive it does not answer the question of what the president or other individuals knew or when they knew it nor does it explain why the democratic national committee headquarters twice was the target of an illegal entry it seems apparent however that congressional committee oversight did not function effectively as a deterrent to those who may have sought to utilize governmental intelligence and investigative agencies for unlawful or unauthorized purposes thus because of the cost the secrecy the lack of effective supervision the uncertainty of domestic activities and the extreme difficulty in obtaining access to classified materials i am of the opinion that the subject of government intelligence operations requires extensive further examination 
i wish to associate myself with the recommendation in the committee report for closer supervision of central intelligence agency activities by the appropriate congressional oversight committees i would go one step further and propose that the congress should consider the creation of a special joint committee on intelligence activities i believe the highly sensitive nature of intelligence operations the expanding scope of the intelligence gathering requirement and the enormous cost and dedication of manpower and resources to the intelligence undertaking in the united states fully justifies a new committee arrangement such a committee not dissimilar to the joint committee on atomic energy could more effectively coordinate among the various intelligence investigative agencies now subject to congressional oversight than can the several committees now having partial oversight responsibilities thus i believe that a joint committee would present no legitimate threat to the intelligence community in terms of jeopardizing or compromising their necessary intelligence operations and would provide greater assurance that our intelligence gathering and investigative agencies are complying with the law and are working in the best interest of the nation three reformation of congressional investigatory hearing procedures so as to provide increased protection for the rights of individuals although this recommendation does not clearly fall within the province of senate resolution sixty the select committee hearings highlighted the fact that congressional investigatory proceedings exhibit a determination to ferret out the facts even if the investigative process may grievously injure the protective rights of individuals who are or may become defendants in judicial proceedings thus i believe that congress should give careful attention to the codification of rules of legislative hearing procedure so as to provide the same assurance that individual constitutional rights are not impaired by legislative hearings as the federal rules of criminal procedure provide in criminal proceedings i believe that such rules should provide a mechanism whereby witnesses and proposed witnesses before legislative hearings who are or may be subject to criminal prosecution can be identified and afforded additional procedural protections than is now the case for instance a vulnerable witness might be given the right to have counsel participate in the questioning of other witnesses presenting testimony adverse to the interests of the vulnerable witness in addition the congress should study the advisability of imposing common law and or federal evidentiary rules in certain types if not all legislative hearings finally the congress may wish to establish a legislative public defender whose duty would be to proctor legislative hearings and investigations so as to provide for the protection of the rights of individuals as exemplified by the history of the select committee the investigatory power of a congressional committee is extremely broad and pervasive and in actuality is restricted only by the wording of the resolution or other legislative vehicle creating the committee and the authority of the committee to investigate such matters while litigation and congressional discretion have provided some due process limitations upon congressional investigations a congressional committee is not a jury nor a court and common law and statutory evidentiary rules are not applicable to committee investigations the most obvious example is hearsay testimony which is recited throughout the committee report moreover through its contempt power use immunity and public pressure a congressional committee can in many cases 
indirectly overcome an individual's privilege against self-incrimination in a manner which could never occur in a court of law as mentioned above individuals whose conduct is being investigated often are not afforded the opportunity to have counsel cross-examine witnesses presenting testimony detrimental to them thus while i will protect jealously the privilege and the right of congressional committees to conduct inquiries concerning the administration of existing laws as well as new statutes i believe that legislation conveying the recognition of the need to protect the rights of potential defendants the sanctity of criminal trials and the impartiality of the impeachment process can be effected without constituting a detriment to a legislative committee's fact-finding power four campaign and electoral reforms among the several inadequacies in our political process highlighted by watergate none is more glaring than the need for comprehensive campaign and electoral reform the types of campaign abuses prevalent during the nineteen seventy two campaigns though shocking in terms of their scope were by no means unprecedented the fact of the matter is and has been that political campaigns take place in a legal vacuum with the possible exception of the federal elections campaign act of nineteen seventy one there has been no significant attempt by congress to regulate political campaigns since the corrupt practices act of nineteen twenty five and even that was more loophole than law thus it is not surprising that campaigns have taken on the appearance of a political free-for-all in which the distinction between illegal unethical and immoral conduct is generally obscured the fallout from that atmosphere is cumulative and has resulted in a devastating erosion of public trust and confidence in the process by which public officials are elected moreover if the country is to benefit from the experience of the past two years it is essential that the congress undertake fundamental reform of the electoral process reform which includes not only campaign finance but also various aspects of the actual election process the type of reform most vital and about which the select committee assembled a wealth of data was campaign finance from a financial standpoint the nineteen seventy two campaign for president was no different from past campaigns in that there was no effective regulation of the source form or amount of political contributions although the federal elections campaign act of nineteen seventy one required more complete disclosure of contributions the nineteen seventy two campaign was still largely funded through a system of unrestricted large-sum private financing it was this system that permitted one individual to give two million dollars while over two hundred million people did not contribute this system gave rise to the allegations that the milk producers received an increase in the support price of milk in return for the pledge of large contributions it was this system which permitted individuals to launder cash through mexico in an effort to suppress the identity of the source and finally it was this system which permitted the accumulation of three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in a white house safe none of which was reported and most of which purportedly was dispersed for political espionage and alleged hush money consequently it is not surprising that considerable support has developed within the country and the congress for complete abandonment of this system in favor of substantial public financing i can sympathize with that view for public financing certainly appears pure and absolute 
but it is not the answer although public financing probably would solve a limited number of problems afflicting the present process it would almost certainly create an equal number of potentially greater dangers some of those would stem no doubt from the incestuous nature of the government's financing the process by which it is selected the responsiveness portion of the select committee's report details the repeated efforts of members of the administration to influence or abuse the various departments and agencies for purely political purposes would it not be possible under a system of public financing in which an arm of the government was responsible for allocating funds to abuse that authority on behalf of one candidate or party under the guise of bureaucratic red tape some would argue that it is overly cynical to make such an assumption but perhaps it would have been cynical a few years ago to assume that an administration would try to actively utilize its broad powers to punish political adversaries we can ill afford to overlook the possibility of such an incident in the public financing sector ten or twenty years from now another serious problem with comprehensive public financing in my judgment is the effect it will have upon the individual's first amendment right of freedom of political expression i believe that right gives each citizen the right of expressing himself politically whether by contribution or otherwise or conversely refraining from such expression and in a nation which prides itself on protecting individual rights the option to refrain from exercising that right must be considered as vital as the right itself i therefore urge that it is essential to maintain participation in our political process on a voluntary basis while attempting to increase the opportunities and incentives to participate public financing however provides no such choice rather it states that the need to eliminate the influence of large-sum contributors and special interests is so compelling that we must abandon the use of all voluntary private financing in favor of mandatory public financing and in the case of the latter we have no control over which candidate receives our tax dollars nor whether they are actually used for that purpose in fact taxpayers would be directly supporting candidates whom they consider repugnant if it were merely a question of unrestricted private financing or comprehensive public financing then i would support the latter but there is a third more reasonable option which would retain some continuity while avoiding some of the hazards of public financing that option is a system of effectively regulated private financing in which the incentives for small contributions are vastly enhanced such a system is in essence what the select committee recommends a strict limitation on the size amount and form of private contributions a single campaign committee a single campaign depository an overall expenditure limitation a requirement for full public disclosure before rather than after the election and an independent elections commission are all necessary reforms which would impose order upon the current campaign chaos moreover i would make one further recommendation which would do more to eliminate distortive influence of special interests than any other single action and that is to prohibit altogether contributions from any and all organizations only individuals can vote and i believe only individuals should be permitted to contribute some have argued however 
that if we eliminate the financial influence of the special interests and strictly limit the size of individual contributions we cannot effectively fund a competitive two-party system indeed without some new incentives for millions of americans to make small contributions such a system would clearly discourage constructive opposition and tend to bolster the inherent advantages of incumbency thus i would propose a one hundred percent tax credit on all contributions made in a calendar year up to fifty dollars on an individual return and one hundred dollars on a joint return such a credit would enable each taxpayer to divert up to fifty dollars of his tax money to a candidate or candidates if and only if he desires to do so this approach would be entirely voluntary thereby protecting the individual's freedom of political expression moreover it would generate sufficient funds so that we might avoid having to resort to the direct appropriation of tax monies for political purposes a realistic and effective tax incentive combined with the aforementioned list of statutory reforms would afford a fair and competitive means of funding political campaigns i am convinced further that we cannot hope to reverse the current trend of erosion of public trust and confidence without sharply increasing public participation in the political process in that regard i would urge that serious consideration be given automatic registration of voters in federal elections at age eighteen the history of the united states has been a history of the extension of the voting franchise yet even today a significant number of our citizens are effectively prevented from participating in elections by complex and often archaic registration and residency requirements the postcard voter registration bill passed by the senate last year was an effort to deal with this problem but i opposed it because of my concern for the potential for mail fraud and abuse of such a system several western nations have already successfully implemented a form of automatic voter registration in the scandinavian countries for example and in switzerland every eligible citizen is registered ex officio in a voting register a list of voters is published by the election authorities in advance of the election date any citizen whose name has not been included in the list then has until approximately a week before the election to correct the situation in the united states however citizens still must contend with what amounts to a perpetual registration process i fully realize that some difficulties will arise in translating automatic registration to the realities of the american experience and attempting to reconcile it with state registration procedures perhaps social security numbers could be utilized to standardize this procedure since more than ninety five percent of eligible voters are already registered with social security in any event the concept deserves consideration in my view and if workable it could provide a valuable incentive to increase citizen participation i would also urge major reform of our present spasmodic system of presidential primaries there are essentially three alternatives in this regard a refinement of the present system requiring the twenty-five states who hold presidential primaries to do so on four or five specific dates at two or three week intervals a single national primary for each party with a subsequent runoff unless one candidate polls more than forty per cent and a system of regional primaries also held at specific intervals but encompassing all of the country of these three proposals 
i am most inclined to support the one for a system of regional primaries in which every eligible voter who desires to participate in the election of a party nominee can do so by voting in the regional primary which includes his state this would permit the millions of americans who support candidates who will not receive the party nomination to express that support in a meaningful way it would also give them a personal stake in the election and increase the likelihood of their participation in the subsequent general election campaign specifically i would propose dividing the country into four geographic regions largely along the lines of time zones so as to avoid holding a southern or a new england primary with a distinct ideological slant i would make those regions of roughly equal population and would hold the four primaries at three-week intervals beginning in early june and ending in early august the respective primary candidates would compete for state delegates who would be won according to the proportion of vote received in each state rather than on a winner-take-all basis although i am aware of the high cost involved in running regional primaries the basic idea is to vastly expand the public participation in the nominating process and to significantly reduce the official length of presidential campaigns as it is now the first presidential primary normally takes place in early march with the general election eight months later in november but as i see it there is absolutely no reason why that process must take that long it exhausts the candidates costs exorbitant sums of money and eventually bores a great many people i would propose that all primaries for federal office be held no earlier than the first of june and no later than the fifteenth of august this would significantly shorten the official length of campaigns for federal office and permit the congress to work at relatively full strength for four months before most members are forced to return to their states or districts to campaign full time for the nomination i also recommend that we open and close polls all across the country at a uniform time and that they be open to full twenty-four hours the arguments for this are simple and well known but briefly stated this is the best way i know of to prevent the harmful effects of broadcast networks projecting the outcomes of elections based on very early returns when polls in the western states are still open moreover twenty-four hours would maximize the individual's opportunity to vote before after or during work i further recommend that the presidential electoral system be made more responsive and representative by the abolition of the electoral college that eighteenth-century vestigial remnant of constitutional compromise i personally favor and have always supported the direct election of the president by popular vote but having unsuccessfully urged that move i am willing to settle for an improvement if not a cure for this situation i propose that congress and the states fully debate the merits of popular vote congressional district vote proportional allocation of electoral votes by states according to the popular vote or any other electoral process calculated to eliminate what i view as the most onerous elements of the present system that is to say one the winner-take-all by state process which created and perpetuated the one-party south for a century after the civil war and second the possibility of the selection of the president by the house of representatives which constitutes the most undemocratic of all the allocation systems some say that the reform of the electoral college is not related to the mandate of senate resolution sixty but i disagree 
i think that the sensitivity of the electoral system the coherence of the selection process the vitality of the two-party system and the integrity of financial support are essential to the political prosperity of the country and are paramount in their importance to every other democratic consideration five the institution of the presidency i believe there exists a fundamental infirmity in the relationship of the chief magistrate of the nation to the two other coordinate branches of government this development is not of recent origin it has matured steadily since at least the beginning of the twentieth century and at an accelerated pace since the great depression of the nineteen thirties the presidency has become splendid and it has become increasingly isolated surrounded by the trappings of privilege and the sanctuary of security both national and personal the presidency is indeed the most equal of all the equal branches its jurisdiction and the scope and sweep of its powers are enormous and broad while it may be that gradually grafting onto the presidency of additional powers and authorities is a natural development in the evolution of our democracy there are certain elements of what has come to be known as a strong presidency that i do not believe to be desirable in recent years the president's personal staff has served as his council of advisers and in some instances the primary delegates of presidential authority this is countered to the historical concept of the cabinet system where the president's cabinet served as his principal advisers in addition to being the administrators of the several departments of the government by way of example under article two section two the president is empowered constitutionally to require the written opinion of the principal officer in the executive departments i think that the original cabinet system is preferable to a plethora of presidential counselors white house counselors special advisers and the like the cross-pollination that occurs in councils of individuals operating from independent bases of jurisdictional authority is distinctly preferable to the highly structured closely supervised personal staff strong persons in strong positions are a significant force for good or evil and i believe that the opportunity for good is greatly expanded and the possibility of a yes man syndrome is greatly diminished in the cabinet situation the underutilization of the resources and personnel of the department of justice and almost complete reliance upon the white house legal staff is another recent development which i consider to be unfortunate i believe it essential that there be one arm of the executive branch that is the primary legal authority and which is responsible for providing the entire administration including the president with objective legal advice i propose that the office of legal counsel in the department of justice be formally charged with the responsibility to serve as legal counsel to the president i have come to believe notwithstanding my earlier support for the ratification of the twenty-second amendment that we made a mistake in limiting a president to two terms and that the twenty-second amendment should be repealed i believe that the discipline of standing for re-election or at least contemplating the possibility of standing for re-election is a desirable one and that the nature of the presidency is materially altered by the constitutional limitation of two terms i think the incumbency factor which is much vaunted and highly prized by political observers is overstated in the first instance but that it would be diminished by the repeal of the twenty-second amendment after all 
incumbency is less regal if one must at least consider the possibility of standing for re-election four years hence in short the atmosphere engendered by the removal of political pressures from a president who has been re-elected to his second term presents in my opinion far greater potential for abuse of power than a situation in which an incumbent president always is presented with the opportunity to seek re-election as for most public issues we have spawned our share of clichés and one of the favorites describes the chief magistrate as an imperial president implying isolation arrogance and non-responsiveness while i may not subscribe to all the elements of that characterization i do feel that separation of powers has become more than a constitutional doctrine it has become a geographic fact although the nature of the presidency certainly is influenced by the individual occupant interaction between the executive and the legislative departments and with the public is not only desirable but essential i have often proposed that the president should maintain an office in the capital and that the president or at least some of his principal staff should occupy that office from time to time and be available to legislators on matters of mutual interest certainly the single most notable evidentiary achievement of the select committee was the revelation by alexander butterfield of the tape recording system utilized in the presidential offices in both the white house and the executive office building i am not sure i understand why the tape recording facilities were installed but i find the practice objectionable and not in keeping with the grandeur of the presidency i rather suspect that recent experiences will mitigate against that practice in the future in any event i believe that congress should consider carefully a prohibition of the electronic recording of conversations occurring both in rooms and on telephones except with the express prior consent of all the participants to the conversation or unless carefully supervised by a court of competent jurisdiction for specified statutory purposes six increased national party committee role in federal elections finally i believe watergate might never have occurred had there been more politics instead of less in the white house politics is an honorable profession it is probably a free citizen's highest secular calling the republic could not function without the dedication of millions of citizen politicians and consequently i hope that politics is an honorable undertaking is not a casualty of watergate i urge that our young people who are easily the best educated most aware and the most participatory of any generation involve themselves in the politics of the nation the two-party system must flourish as a system of two broad-based national parties each able to accommodate the wide variety of viewpoints and ideas and to synthesize the majority view on any given election day i think presidential and vice-presidential campaigns in particular ought to be the responsibility of the national party structure and not temporary collateral organizations such as the committee to re-elect the president i take great pride in noting after these extended hearings that neither the republican national committee nor the democratic national committee were involved in campaign illegalities in any way nor were their chairmen or principal officers both our parties are great parties and they are essential to the functioning of the country end of section twenty nine